Our reading this morning is taken from Matthew, chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. And you'll find it in the Church Bible at page 985. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that's wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about the one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any one of these little ones should be lost. As a graduate trainee at Deutsche Bank in the 80s, I remember going on a training course at a training centre outside Frankfurt, and one evening having the the chief executive officer of the bank come and uh, answer some questions that we had for him. That was um, Dr. Alfred Herrhausen came with his minder. Um, And he was an incredibly bright person, um, showed a lot of interest in the uh, the young graduates. And in Germany, heads of business are effectively on a par with, I guess, government ministers in this country, so people do look up to them. And uh, certainly on that occasion, we were very much in awe of this person. A couple of years later, I was working for the bank in Berlin when we heard the news that um, the armour-plated Mercedes that he used to go to work in, taking a different route each day, had been blown up by a terrorist attack. Um, He was given a state funeral and um, the whole bank closed down to, to watch the service on the television. In Germany, he had virtually the highest status anybody could achieve and yet 
even in that moment of death when he had this brilliant state funeral, that status had been reduced to the same as anybody else who would have been buried on that day in Germany. Over the summer we are doing a sermon series on questions that were asked of Jesus, focusing on these uh, latter chapters from Matthew's Gospel. And the question we come on to today is one that Jesus' disciples asked him. They said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The passage opens, if you'd like to turn to it in your Bibles, if you haven't got it open already, on page 985. In verse 1 of chapter 18, with the words, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus. And before we look at what Jesus' answer was to that question, so you sort of know exactly what was going on at that time, what had been happening up to this point. The journey of faith of the disciples was a gradual one, as it is for for many of us. The truth of who Jesus was and why he had come was slowly beginning to dawn. Up to this point, Jesus had called his disciples to follow him. And because of the authority that he showed towards them, they they did just that. He performed miracles. He taught them amazing things. He'd sent them out with the ability to to drive out demons, to heal illness. And so it's not surprising when in chapter 16, Jesus asks Peter, who do you say I am? And uh, Peter answers in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. If you flick over to chapter 17, we read here that Jesus took Peter, James and John up a high mountain by themselves. And there we're told Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And it says they beheld the glory of God. Not only that, Moses and Elijah appeared. And from a bright cloud came the voice, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And it's not surprising. Those disciples were absolutely terrified. But they knew that this was no ordinary man. And then in the final little incident at the end of chapter 17 there about the the temple tax, Jesus shows Peter in a roundabout way that he is the king of this earth. And that in many ways, neither he nor his disciples should be paying any tax. But uh, says so as not to offend the earthly authorities, he produces some money from a fish, from a creature that he himself has made. All these incidents are pointing to the fact that the kingdom that Jesus is establishing is just around the corner. And so in many ways you can't blame the disciples for trying to to jostle for for pole position in the same way the Formula One cars would as they leave the the grid. But what is surprising is that in the midst of all these revelations of Jesus' kingship, of his glory, the disciples have missed the key lesson that he's been trying to teach them about what he's come for. And that is an order for his kingdom to be established and how he expects the citizens of his kingdom to live. You turn back again to the end of chapter 16. Jesus here explains to his disciples that he must suffer, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life in verse 21. And when Peter takes him aside and says, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to men. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And he goes on to tell the disciples of the way in which they too must 
sacrifice their lives if they want to follow him. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And again, at the end of the Transfiguration Transfiguration episode, Jesus tells them in chapter 17, verse um, 22, I think, or 12, I think it is, um, the Son of Man must suffer. And after the healing of the boy with a demon that we looked at last week, he says, in verse 22 here, he says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. That is the context of the words that open chapter 18 at that time. With all these things just having taken place, with the teaching that Jesus has given them, the disciples come to Jesus and ask him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What makes the disciples' questions so crass is that just as the king, who has already given up his heavenly status in heaven, is about to give up his life and suffer and die at the hands of his subjects, the people for whom he's going to die are staking a claim for their own status. The reason Jesus must be killed is because of the natural rebellious attitude of each one of us that says, I'm the most important person in this world. I'm all that matters. I'm going to lead my life my way. And it's because of that sinful attitude with which we are all born that we deserve to be punished. And it's to save us from that punishment that Jesus was about to give up his life for the world. What the disciples' question reveals at this stage is that they still haven't quite understood the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is about to make that very clear to them as he answers their question. So let's turn to that. Well, how does Jesus answer them? As we saw earlier with the, uh, the, the children... He calls a little child and has him stand among them and says in a patient, a very direct way, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Of course, that raises the question, what does it mean to become like little children? And we considered that a bit earlier. It may be helpful to to put this next to the teaching we find elsewhere in the Bible about children. Because to become like little children doesn't mean we become suddenly innocent. We are told in the Bible we are born sinful. David writes in Psalm 51, he writes, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And we know from our own experience, don't we? And as as young mums here will will be able to tell you, um, when they enter the world, they can be quite selfish, demanding creatures. They know what they want and they will do anything to get it whatever time of the day or night. But neither can becoming like little children mean we should become childish. Much of us may be inclined to to do that. But um, no, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, brothers, stop thinking like children. Children are easily swayed. As it says in Ephesians, we're encouraged to become mature. It says, then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. To understand what Jesus is getting at here, it may help to appreciate the status of children in the first century. They were not wrapped in in cotton wool, as many children are these days. They had no responsibility, no possessions. They had no status. 
They were treated probably more like children were in Victorian times, of not of being seen but not being heard. And so when Jesus says, unless you change and become like little children, what he is saying is, unless you realise that you have no rights before God, that nothing you can point to to show that you deserve to be part of his kingdom, you will not enter it. And he's not actually answering the disciples' question here because they've asked the wrong question. He's saying, if you think the kingdom of heaven is about greatness in worldly terms, then you've got it wrong. You need to completely rethink that. Greatness, he's saying, is not about what you can do. It's not about what you can achieve. It's about who you are in the sight of God, as we'll come on to. And we can't really blame the disciples. You know, they're merely thinking in, in earthly terms. And those terms are no different from the way we think today. You know, the greatest thing for most people today is their achievements. It starts from an early age, as children are, are driven by, by their parents' desire to see them succeed at school, to get into university, to get a good career, to climb the career ladder. Our society is organised around having to justify why you are better than the next person, why you deserve more rewards than they do, more bonuses than they do. So we have TV programmes, don't we, where candidates are whittled down one by one, and as they're each told, no, sorry, you're not good enough. And if you're Andrew Lloyd Webber, you rub it in by making them sing on the way out, close every door to me, hide all the world from me. How does that make you feel? And when you read the obituaries in the newspapers, I don't know whether you do that, the people who make it into the papers are those who've achieved something in their life. This week, uh, there were obituaries for two very different people. There was, on the one hand, Lieutenant Commander David Foster, a naval pilot who had uh, won the DSO, two DSCs, who later became chairman of Colgate-Palmolive. And then we had Alex Hurricane Higgins, brilliant snooker player, twice world champion, who was credited with... Uh, lifting snooker out of smoky back rooms into the international arena. But his career was undermined by his lifestyle. Society is built around achievement. Don't get me wrong, it is good to achieve in the sense of using the gifts that God has given us to the best of our ability to fulfil that. The question is why are we trying to achieve? What are we hoping to get by that? Because we are grateful to God for the gifts and abilities he's given us and we want to use them for his glory? Or is it because we are seeking our status, our importance? And as for many people, achieving something to make sure that we are remembered after our death. For some people, that is the way of becoming um, immortal. Well, if we are interested in our own status and glory and worldly recognition, and Jesus gives us a stark warning, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But having given us the negative warning in verse 3, Jesus then goes on to give the positive encouragement in verse 4. He says, Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this little child. Now, what that doesn't mean is to say, to, to humble yourself means to say, well, I'm just useless at everything. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean to keep your gifts to yourself and to not use them, to hide your light under a bushel. 
It doesn't mean to not try out any gifts that you may have. All those things are a sense of false humility. They're they're only ingratitude. What it does mean is to accept we have been given gifts by God, but to not rely on those things to make us right with God and to earn his acceptance. The trouble is, when we are successful in this life, because of the gifts God has given us, it does make us hard. It does make it hard for us to overcome that sense of self-importance and realise that we have nothing to contribute to our salvation. Jonathan Aiken was someone who had all this earthly status to stripped away from him. He described himself in his own words as a successful politician. He says, I was in my fifth term as a member of parliament in the House of Commons and had held two portfolios as a Minister of the Crown. One of them was Minister of State for Defence, and the other one was the post of Chief Secretary to the Treasury. They were powerful posts. and I was was getting quite frequently tipped as a possible future leader of my party and as a successor to John Major. And he admitted that pride is the deadliest of sins. But I was bursting with pride, he says. I took myself far too seriously. Well, after being found guilty of perjury, his world collapsed, his career was in ruins, he declared himself bankrupt and found himself in prison. But he says, the time when I was at the nadir, the lowest of my misfortunes, was the time when I turned more humbly and penitently than ever towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that may be a dramatic stripping away of all this earthly status that we have, but we are all to say, with however much, however much or however little we may have in earthly status, we are all, in the words of the hymn, Rock of Ages, to say, Nothing in my hand I bring, naked to thy cross I cling. And that includes our spiritual gifting as well. You know, the, many of you here are incredibly gifted spiritually. Many of you have an amazing desire and an amazing energy to serve God. And the danger can be that the more spiritual gifts we have, the more committees we're on, the more people we win for Christ, the more people we entertain, the more groups we help out with, the better we are able to understand and explain Christian doctrine. The more spiritual experiences we have, the greater the temptation to think that somehow God needs us, that somehow we deserve to be accepted by God. To humble yourself like a little child is to strip all that away and say, all that I am is only by your grace. We are all to trust completely in what Jesus has done for us. He has taken the punishment that we deserve. We are to rely on that alone for our salvation. And so to humble ourselves, become like little children, is to demonstrate a childlike trust, a dependence on Jesus Christ. And when you do that, Jesus says, then you are the greatest in the kingdom. He loves, he values those who are dependent on him in that way. Which is why this uh, passage here is followed by the parable of the lost sheep. Look at verse 10 to 14 there, this little parable about how the shepherd is prepared to not lose even one of his valued sheep. He thinks of them so much. He'll go and search for him. He'll go and bring him back. It says, in the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any one of these little ones should be lost. 
And little ones here now is not just referring to children, but to those who belong to the kingdom of heaven. Who are little in status, but great in God's eyes. Well, as we understand how much God values those who trust in him, we begin to appreciate what our role should be towards uh, those believers, to those who are often least in this world. And that is that we should treat those that God values in the same way that he does and not cause them to stumble. Verse 5 says, Whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. The world is not interested in welcoming unimportant people because you know, if your aim is growing in importance, growing in status, then they cannot help you achieve that aim. You know, they are of no use to you. You're almost wasting your time with them. You know, David Cameron has just finished his first world tour and obviously he thought very carefully beforehand about what will be the countries that he should visit. And I'm sure there are countries that were of no strategic importance to him. Not surprising that he chose the US, one most powerful country in the world, the one with which we enjoy a special relationship. Not surprising that he visited India, the one with great prospects, the economy growing at 9% a year. He's able to sign a £700 million contract in the process. And Turkey, an interesting choice for world security. He chose those that are of strategic importance in the process. I think he upset others. Um, There will be times in your job where you obviously are looking to build relationships. But there are times, though, when in the process of seeking those that we may ignore the ones that God values. That we, as it says here, we do look down on these little ones. And when we do that, it's because we think they're less important than ourselves. I remember when I arrived at university looking for um, a church to settle in, some Christian friends to to meet. I met a few Christians there and uh, I did think I didn't really have an awful lot in common with these uh, these guys. You know, they're almost a bit too sort of, a bit too wimpish really. And what I was sort of saying was that I considered myself above them. When actually they had far more to offer me than I had to offer them. Who do we talk to after church? Do we uh, seek out our friends because it's easy, it requires less effort, we want to catch up with them, and that's good to do. We should do that. But do we also look, after, look out for those who are on their own, those who are new, those who we might find it just a bit awkward to, to talk to? Those who are the least. Wes Stafford is the uh, president of Compassion International, a missionary organisation that many of us support. And they support disadvantaged children in countries throughout the world. Um, he's written a book entitled Too Small to Ignore. And the subtitle is Why the Least of These Matters Most. And the same applies in God's sight. Not just to children, but to all who are least in the world's eyes, but valued by him. Well, Jesus goes on to give a warning here in verse 6. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, 
It'll be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That is quite a strong warning, isn't it? The the phrase translated cause to sin is more cause to stumble. In other words, if any of us are a stumbling block to God's people, how can we be a stumbling block? Well, if you just look back at chapter 16, verse 23, where we have that incident with Peter. Um, Peter used that phrase to Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to men. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And in the context of this passage, I think to be a stumbling block to others is to have such a, a high view of ourselves, to have a worldly view that we offend and we turn believers away from Jesus. That is the worst thing that we can do. And in verses 7 to 9, which we haven't got time to look at this morning, Jesus is saying that if there is any element left in you of human pride, he's saying root it out. He's saying destroy it. Because otherwise, it will destroy you. Well, as we, uh, as we finish, none of us deserves to enter the kingdom of heaven. And if we are already a citizen of Jesus' kingdom, and that is a kingdom that is open to all, then we are there by God's grace. He has made us aware of our unworthiness. He's made us aware of our need for his forgiveness. And we all call to humble ourselves like little children. If we acknowledge that all we are, all we have is by God's grace, if we put our whole trust in him, then we will be the greatest in heaven. He values each one of his people. He makes no distinction in the way that the world does. And that's the way we should behave towards others.